Welcome to the IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast for couples who struggle with infertility and want to fulfill their dreams of becoming parents. To access previous episodes packed with ideas, solutions, and tips that actually work, head over to Dr. Chapman's IVF podcast on iTunes. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1-800-111-483 or by emailing him michael.chapman at ivf.com.au. Hi, this is Professor Chapman. Recently we've been doing some Facebook Live sessions where I've been answering questions from the listeners and participants. What you're about to hear now is some audio of those segments and I hope they'll be useful for you. Question from Brooke Prof. Is there any point of having IVF at 43 slash 44? If you sat in front of me at 43, 44 and said, I'm here because I want to have a baby and I want to give it the best chance possible, I would say, yes, I'm happy to take you through an IVF cycle. However, we need to be realistic. My chances of getting you pregnant at 43 to 44, taking home a baby are less than 10%. Now, most women I say that to who've come to the point of getting a referral to see me from the GP, making the appointment, uh, are already committed to doing something, something uh, so that when they get perhaps to 50 and they look back and say, why didn't I try? And that's probably the balance that most people that I see, despite me giving them such a poor prognosis, will still go ahead and do IVF. And I would never say no to you. Amanda says, how quickly after a full term pregnancy, can you safely do another stim round? The things that interfere with uh, hormones are potentially the breastfeeding. If you're breastfeeding and your prolactin levels are high, perhaps that's not a good time to be doing IVF. But if you've weaned the baby, within a month or so of that, I'd be more than comfortable taking you through an IVF cycle. If you breastfed for three months and now you're, you know, you've now stopped, then that's fine. Get on with it. If you're breastfeeding and you want to keep going till 12 months, then maybe you should be putting it off at least until you start to get regular periods. And you should be getting the doctor to check your prolactin level to make sure that it's not elevated. Question from Kristen, Prof. I'm currently in the process of being diagnosed with endometriosis, but over 12 months ago, my partner got tested and the results were the worst. What is the process when it could be a mixture of both my issues and his? What we divide things up is that something like 20% of and there's 20% of cases, maybe even 30% if you take age uh, older patients in the cohort, 30% are unexplained. In other words, there's no endometriosis, there's good sperm and there's normal tubes and normal ovulation. Then there's about 40% which are due to female factors like endometriosis or failure to ovulate. And then there's 40% that are male. And if you add all that together, that's 100 and whatever it is percent. So there is an overlap where probably 15 to 20% of couples, it's blame is on both sides. The worst news, I'm not sure quite what that means, is there's no sperm at all, but they need to be seen again by somebody who understands male fertility. And not every general gynecologist or urologist uh, who GPs might refer people to uh, understand male fertility. There are a very few. I mean, in Sydney, there's probably one or two urologists who deal with prostates and that sort of thing who also understand male fertility. Most of them don't. Amongst gynecologists, there's the group who've done the, the boards um, in uh, with our college for REI. 
and that's reproductive endocrinology and infertility, and we are trained in male fertility. So finding out, finding someone who's got the CREI is going to give your husband the best chance of finding out why and possibly how we can improve it. Uh, in relation to endometriosis, uh, obviously a laparoscopy sounds like you may have had done already and removal as much as possible. But again, it's the subspecialists who do that best. There are lapros- all gynecologists, when we finish training them in their six years at the public hospitals, can do laparoscopies. But very few of them, unless they've done the advanced training program called AGES, A-G-E-S, fellowship program, uh, can actually tackle significant endometriosis. Because And unless you tackle it properly, it'll keep coming back more quickly. And in terms of getting pregnant, you're better off having a good excision by a qualified, experienced laparoscopic surgeon than someone who just dabbles. Question from Claire, Prof. She says, hi, just wondering how long it would take to ovulate slash regulate period after starting metformin for PCOS. The evidence for metformin actually having an influence on pregnancy rates is not convincing. Randomized studies have suggested it probably doesn't have any impact on ovulation. Um, You're much better off if you're trying to get to ovulate to use drugs that specifically would be state changing the hormone profiles that stimulate ovulation, and that's letrozole, Femira, Femara, sorry, uh, or clomiphene, clomid. If you're trying to get pregnant, that's the best way forward. Now, if you're taking metformin to control your insulin resistance and your obesity, yes, I mean, take it, that's fine, but it won't in itself change your chances of ovulating. You can use them together, metformin and one of these other drugs, ovarian inducers. But again, you need to be seen by somebody who understands both sides of that story. Should I have more than one embryo if that's an opportunity? Do you, I presume you're meaning transferring more than one embryo at one time? It's a question I, we, we often get asked, particularly if you've been unsuccessful in one cycle or another. But single embryo transfer is not as successful in terms of pregnancy rates as putting two back. But putting two back certainly doesn't double it. It raises it a little bit. More importantly, if you do happen to be successful with both embryos and you have twins, the cruel statistics are that you're twice as likely to have a baby die from prematurity than a singleton pregnancy. And perhaps, perhaps even more important is there's four times the chance of the, your babies having cerebral palsy. So when I say that to patients who may have asked about having two embryos back, 99.9% of them say, put one, thanks, and we, we freeze the other. Compared with 10 years ago, the freezing of that second embryo gives you a pregnancy rate that's just the same as your fresh one. So you lost nothing by not putting two back. But you do gain in terms of potential time in special care units and the sequelae of cerebral palsy and possibly losing a baby. So in Australia, we've led the world in single embryo transfer. Now, uh, 90% of all embryo transfers in Australia are single embryo transfers for that very reason. To give you some context, Brooke was the person who asked if there's any point trying IVF at 43 slash 44. Well, again, if you get to the stage of blastocysts, they're all, you know, uh, if we freeze them, they're as good as frozen as, as they are fresh. So we'd still only put one back. So a question from Michelle. Can you please advise how many cycles of ovulation inductions and IUIs before going to IVF? It's an individual thing. Let's assume you, you, you've got polycystic ovaries and you've never ovulated in your life and you start ovulation induction. The data is pretty clear that all you're doing by making you ovulate on a regular basis 
is to put you back to a normal fertility rate. And the normal fertility rate is somewhere between 15 and 20% per month if you're under the age of 35. So 15 to 20% per month, um, by six months, you should be 60% chance of having of being pregnant. By 12 months, it goes up to about 75% of, you, of women who've been taking ovulation induction agents. What do I say to patients? I say, do be patient. Let's go for three months, see where we are. If you haven't got pregnant in that time, let's make sure there's not anything else that's stopping you getting pregnant, like blocked tubes. Um, or sperm problems, then go on towards six months. So I encourage patients who haven't ovulated before and are relatively young to keep trying with ovulation induction rather than rushing on to do IVF. But as I said earlier, there will be doctors, I can't say it's because they make money out of it, but it may well be, uh, who think that IVF is a cure for everything. Um, it's not the case. So if, if, that's, if it's anovulation, be patient. Going on to IUI after ovulation induction is worthwhile. It doesn't get you much better than a 20% chance per cycle. So I would use it um, in women who are relatively uh, recently trying to get pregnant uh, with, with when they've started to ovulate. Say after that six months time frame, we could go on to IUI, but I'd only go for a couple of cycles and then move on to IVF. But IUI does have its place. If you are ovulating regularly and everything is normal and you've only been trying for six or 12 months, then IUI is definitely a treatment of choice rather than going straight to IVF. If you're, uh, the evidence suggests that if you've been trying and everything's normal for two years or more, don't bother going through IUI, go straight to IVF. As you can hear from what I've just said, that's all of those are little complex pluses and minuses that you really need to speak an expert, speak to an expert about. And don't forget that you can access all the previous episodes by going to our website www.theivfjourney.com and select IVF Journey Podcast from the navigation menu. Thank you for listening to The IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast which helps couples negotiate their way through the IVF journey all the way to parenthood. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1-800-111-483 or by emailing him michael.chapman at ivf.com.au.